0: Hello, this is Valerie Jackson. Well, for over 11 years, I've had the good joy and fortune of going between the lines with literally hundreds of notable writers and thinkers on everything from string theory to slam poetry. With each book, I looked forward to learning something new, whether it was about a new discovery, an ancient culture, or a fascinating individual. They all offered an opportunity for a new perspective. But as much as this has been a labor of love, and I really mean that, the explorer in me is crying to get out, urging me to work on my bucket list, urging me to investigate some new ventures, and I've finally given in to those urges. Consequently, this month, we are wrapping up our final season of Between the Lines. Although Between the Lines may end, conversations and memories of the past 11 years will serve as a constant stimuli for me, for I dare say, most of my life. I've often been asked, how do you select the books for Between the Lines? Well, it's a joint effort between my producer, Marjorie Lancer, and me. We peruse the dozens of books received monthly and try to deliver a diverse literary program of authors and subjects. The goal of each show is to impart in some way information that serves to stimulate the curious minds of our listeners. I try to provide a unique show by being thoroughly prepared, actually reading the books, researching the authors, and preparing questions. The authors usually appreciated that and, and would say so at the end of the interview. Most of them would say, quote, you actually read the book. I always enjoyed hearing that. I prefer in-studio interviews as opposed to the authors going to an NPR station and we doing it over a line. For me, I like the body language. I like to be able to, to read it and also to kind of send signals to the guest also. Who were some of the most memorable guests? Well, I could start with my very first guest, Deepak Chopra, one of the world's best leading spiritual and alternative medicine authors. We discussed his book, How to Know God. And became fast friends afterwards, close friends still today. And, of course, conversations with Maya Angelou, poet and writer, photographer Annie Leibovitz, Agnes Portier, and President Jimmy Carter were certainly unforgettable. What I love most, I think, about Between the Lines, though, is the, the wealth of information, significant and otherwise, that I've gleaned from the books and authors featured each week. Whether it was about a historical event or a new discovery or a fascinating individual going between the lines always added another question or perspective. I've never really had an unpleasant interview. Even if I didn't agree with the guest philosophically or politically, I always try to maintain a sense of professionalism. One of the more challenging interviews, however, was with Ted Koppel on his book, Off Camera, I think he forgot it wasn't his show because he he wanted to direct the questions. I asked him a question based on something he said in his book, and he responded that he didn't remember saying that. Now, it's not unusual for authors to forget something in their books, so I, I tried to find the passage to prove my point, but I couldn't at that moment. But I want to tell you, from that day on, I noted the page number of any major point or question origin so that that would never happen to me again. But I I smile when I recall the inscription that he wrote afterwards in my book. You squeezed me dry with respect and affection, Ted. Well, I also learned, like a lawyer, to try never to ask a question that I didn't know or have some sense of what the answer was. It helps me to control the conversation, but it also helps in case the author, once again, might forget something that's in the book. I remember talking with Tony Hillerman, the great Southwestern author, and he was about well, close to 90 years old, if not older, and I asked him a question about an issue in the book or, or a scene in the book, and all of a sudden his eyes looked like the, the deer that was caught in the headlights, and I could tell that he couldn't remember what the scene was about. So I kind of fed him bits and pieces and, and, and hinted at what the answer was, and he caught on quickly and was able to to give me uh, the answer that I was looking for. Afterwards, uh, when the show was over, he said to me, thanks for saving me. So it makes a difference when one does read the book. Not quite as challenging or as intimidating as um, Ted Koppel was my interview with Alan Dershowitz. We talked about his book, The Genesis of Justice, where he reveals how 10 stories of biblical injustice led to the Ten Commandments and modern law today. Professor Cornel West, Thomas Friedman, the foreign affairs commentator, uh, historian Henry Lewis Gates, Malcolm Gladwell, his book Blink and Tipping Point have all given me food for thought and hopefully for my listeners also. What's my favorite genre? I enjoy them all. History, biography, novels, poetry, religion, science, and politics— The most difficult thing for me to do is to pick a favorite author or book. However, for this week, we'll be presenting just a few of the Between the Line episodes that prove to be favorites among our listeners. We learn about humanity through new discoveries as well as history. And when I think of history, whether it's jazz, baseball, or war, I think of Ken Burns. Let's listen for a moment to Ken Burns talking about the war. You know, you once said, if we look at the history of a country as if it were a human being, then the Civil War would be the traumatic event of our childhood. Where, then, does this place the war, World
1: War II, in our development? Obviously, what a great and smart question. You know, the Civil War still is the most important thing that happened to Americans. It made us. But I think the Second World War is the most important thing in the history of the world. So it's incredibly important for Americans, and that we played a key role in its outcome is very important to us. It is one of those watershed moments, uh, not only politically and militarily, but we can look at it socially. Here we were fighting a war against the racial theories of the Nazis, and yet we were practicing a version of that in Jim Crow America. When the war comes back, the greatest word that human beings can say was said, which was, no. Mm. I'm not going to move to the back of the bus. Mm. I'm not going to continue to play for segregated baseball teams. I am not going to take my sandwich out of this place. I am not going to do that. Now It took a long time, and the fight isn't over. But we see social change for African-Americans. We see change for women who are suddenly forced propelled, rushing into the workforce. The country's moving. I think what we're seeing is that this is one of those great moments in which everything that came before it, led up to it, and everything afterwards has been, in a way, a consequence, much like we still understand the Civil War, but in our modern era. It is the Second World War that really has set its mark upon everything that's gone on.
0: Okay. Now, for many of us who had uh, world history back in the Mm. eighth grade, 30 years ago, Mm. (laughs) okay, would you just give a capsule, if you can, maybe one or two minutes, capsule review of how we got into the war? Who were the allies? Who who comprised the Axis? Mm -hmm. Um, And including why the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor?
1: Thank you. You know, I wrote a sentence for the film, for the introduction of the film, that said, the greatest cataclysm in history began over ancient and ordinary human emotions, anger, in bigotry and jealousy, victimhood, and the lust for power. And it ended because other human qualities, leadership, courage, faith, uh, hunger for freedom, combined with extraordinary brutality to change the course of human events. After the First World War, which was the war to end all wars, um, had set such pernicious conditions on Germany, they armed themselves and turned themselves into the greatest military and industrial and economic power, on earth. And by 1933, when Adolf Hitler assumed power, uh, they began the systematic consolidation of power, bigotry laws that excluded Jews and others within that country, and set about expanding their empire. On the far side of the world, the Japanese, who would later become part of the axis with uh, fascist Italy, uh, had the same kind of designs on the resources. This island nation, which is dependent on other countries for its oil and other natural resources and coveted the oil fields of Southeast Asia. And the only thing in their way were American bases in the Philippines and Guam and in a remote territory called Hawaii. And we had a big naval base just outside of Honolulu called Pearl Harbor. Events conspired. The United States uh, didn't like their expansion and cut off their oil, and the Japanese bombed us on... uh, December first, 1941, that propelled us into the war. Europe had already been in war when Germany, after first annexing Czechoslovakia, invaded uh, Poland on September 1st, 1939. And Britain and France came to the aid of Poland, and, and the World War was started. Within a, a year, uh, Nazi Germany had taken over almost all of Western Europe and had, in one of the great blunders of all time, invaded Russia, which had been an ally of Nazi Germany for a while. And set in motion the Germans being attacked on the east by the Russians and us uh, eventually being able to mobilize an attack on the west. The famous landing at D-Day is the first time we put boots on the main part of the continent. We'd already invaded Sicily and Italy. And then it's all about the bloody fighting. So mm. for us in the Pacific, it's trying to dislodge Japan from all of its island holdings. And we go from Guadalcanal to Tarawa. We fight naval battles at Midway to Saipan and Tinian and Guam. We're fighting in, in New Guinea. It's, it's a horrific fighting. And what happens in World War II? Stuff. And, you know, I could have been excused after the Civil War. I didn't want to get into the emotional Content anymore of war, but we're losing a thousand veterans a day. Our kids think we fought with the Germans against the Russians. It's terrible. But you look at the survey, the the scene, and most Second World War stuff is all, uh, you know, one oh one and there's no intimacy. Or the ones that drop you down in a particular moment have no context. And none of them show the European and the Pacific theaters simultaneously along with the home front. And all of them are, I believe, distracted by an interest in celebrity generals and politicians, Mm -hmm. in strategy and tactics, to the extent that we forget that it's real human beings fighting in the war. They're distracted by armaments and guns and weaponry as Americans always are. And it's distracted by all things Nazi, where if you look at the history channel which some people call the Hitler channel in a derogatory way there's this almost respect and admiration for the Germans early military successes and you're going wait a second these are the Nazis so we decided to do it entirely from the bottom up, with so-called ordinary people, Mm -hmm. most of them come from these four towns, and clearing away all that dead wood that permits us to get at the Second World War, not the good war, but the worst war ever, and see what it was really like to be in combat by following people not too different from you or me, Mm -hmm. my dad, maybe your dad who could have been there, Mm -hmm. uh, and and begin to understand that, that wars are fought not by the celebrities, but by ordinary people like you and me. They do the fighting and the dying, and that's what the film is about.
0: You, you mentioned dying A 1,000, maybe as many as 1,600 men died each day. The number of dead is astonishing. And for some reason, even though I, I had heard the numbers before, it wasn't until I read this book and saw the film that that it really sank in. And I got so angry when I learned that, first of all, Three or five times more civilians died than military people. So if we had 160 or 1,600 military men dying
1: each day, then that meant that it was brutal. Americans were very, very lucky, with the exception of the attack on Pearl Harbor and those Americans that were caught, unfortunately, overseas in the Philippines and in the in South Asia and and in other places. There's no civilian loss, but but the Germans, the Japanese, mm-hmm. the Italians, the French, mm-hmm. the Belgians, the Brits, the Russians, the Russians, the Russians, the Russians yeah. maybe 20 yeah. million Russian dead, and to in this the day, World in their War. mentality. To this day, because when I visited Russia, I still heard it,
0: they they think about war. Of course. It, it, is, it
1: is still in their minds. If you can imagine, this is the greatest cataclysm in human history and the most consequential fighting uh, took place in, in Russia and on the Eastern Front. Well, I got angry because when I found out so
0: many that had died, but I also got angry when, when I, I learned that many died from inadequate training, friendly fire, equipment failure, poor supplies. This
1: is the story of war, and I think what happens is is we, you know, the Second World War comes down to us as the good war, but it's not. It was just a necessary war, and in fact, it's the worst war ever, and, and what you learn, is that all the plans go out the window the second the fighting stops? And I could mm-hmm. get you, soldier from World War II, which you hear in our film. Get somebody from Iraq today. Go way back to the Peloponnesian Wars, two thousand. And what they say is all the same thing. My officers didn't know what they were doing. I didn't have the right equipment. They didn't give us the right size spears or mm-hmm. or shields or whatever it was back then. It was cold it was hot I was scared I did bad things I saw bad things I lost good friends Mm -hmm. and that's what war is about and and what we cannot do is human beings have it in. They're so excited. Even in the Civil War, we you know, oh, we're so excited to go to war. They they went out of Washington, D.C. with their carriages mm-hmm. and their picnic baskets to watch a war mm-hmm. and went racing with their tails between their legs back into Washington as they saw their own husbands and brothers and sons' entrails spilling out in a, a horrible, horrible battle. And that's what human beings, for some reason, always forget. And if this film does anything, it, it's got two main themes. One If we're going to go to war, let's make sure we're damn sure this is a necessary war because this is the cost of war. Let us show you unvarnished and without the usual Madison Avenue sanitizing and mythologizing. And second, that in shared sacrifice, we made ourselves richer. And I don't mean just spiritually and communally mm-hmm. richer. We made ourselves financially and materially richer. Paradoxically, by giving things up, by doing without, by rationing, by working together, there were no red states, there were no blue states. And this is Americans of many different stripes, uh, many different political persuasions that all got together and prosecuted. Today, we we have 9-11 as, as an important watershed event as Pearl Harbor. And what are we asked to sacrifice? Nothing. We're Nothing. told to so go, go shopping. shopping. You know? And we have a separate military class in this country that suffers its losses apart and alone from the rest of us. And I travel around the country in the last year since the films have been finished showing bits and pieces of it. And I ask people, how many of you know someone in Iraq? And if 2% raise their hand, I'm flabbergasted. We just are disconnected. And then we wonder why we can't make any progress. Why we're pouring money down a hole. Why we can't get trailers to New Orleans. Why we can't repair our own bridges. All of these things that are current Reverberate out of the story of something that that is now sixty, sixty-five years old—the story mm. of the Second World War—which ought to be the reminder of the glue that makes us stick together.
0: Were the journalists and the photographers uh, back in, in World War II were they
1: paid by the government? Were they media people? What? Huh? Great question. Um, a lot were media people assigned, embedded, if you were, like the Ernie Pals that would write for uh, newspaper syndicates or for Stars and Stripes. Uh, but most of the great photography and filmmaking and the f- combat footages. Spectacular, if that's the word you can use, where the intimacy to the killing is so close. Um, we're, we're by combat photographers who were part of the service. And when you look at the most famous things, like uh, the guy who's looking back at people landing at D-Day and a guy's falling, and you realize the guy who's taking this picture has made it this far. Mm-hmm. The fact that he's alive and doesn't have a gun and is not shooting at the Germans, but is shooting back to cover the heroic mm-hmm. choices that these young kids from every corner of the country are making to get off that boat. They're not there for for war. They're not there for empire or conquest. They're there to protect an idea. And they're back in France again as they were a generation before th- to protect the notion of freedom. And it is an amazing thing And it, without those photographers. Robert Capa are or the, or the many, many anonymous combat photographers who risked their lives and lost their lives mm-hmm. getting this. We would not have the palpable record. And we were able to spend six years, six and a half years working on this project. So we've dug deep into the archives of the National Archives in Washington and discovered footage that has never been seen before, color footage, um, footage that makes the war real. And that's what we mm-hmm. want to do. We don't want you to look at this as at arm's length as a safe black and right, white war. Right. We want to put you in these battles.
0: Well, I think it ought to be required viewing and reading for all of the members of Congress and especially the presidential candidates.
1: I, I think so. You know, we need, uh, you know, we call our first episode a necessary war. That's when I asked uh, Sam Hines, one of our Marines, uh, pilots And I said, is, there, is this a good war? And he says, there's no such thing as a good war. There's only necessary right. and perhaps just wars. This was a necessary right. and a just war.
0: As compelling as some of the historical figures are, so is the history of our institutions. I never looked at the CIA the same after going between the lines of Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA by Tim Werner. Let's listen for a few moments. What president was it that called the CIA a Legacy of Ashes, and why?
2: Dwight Eisenhower, in the last months of his presidency, in 1960, began to despair over the whole idea of central intelligence. It was the duty of the director of central intelligence not just to run the CIA, but also to coordinate all American intelligence, military and civilian, and to weave it together for the president. The problem is it's always been like an orchestra where every instrument's got a different score, and uh, the conductor has had a hell of a hard time trying to harmonize the players. And Dwight Eisenhower, in a series of meetings of the National Security Council in those last months of his presidency, in the same weeks that you'll remember he gave a farewell address warning us about the disastrous rise of misplaced power in the military-industrial complex, complex. Mm -hmm. he began to despair of a unified American intelligence under the CIA and within the CIA and he said to Alan Dulles who was the director of Central Intelligence you know I've been after you for 8 years to get this together and I have suffered an 8 year defeat. General Eisenhower didn't like defeat and he lamented aloud I am going to hand on to my successor a legacy of ashes and 4 months later came the Bay of Pigs.
0: Whoa. Whoa. Ike was right. I'm amazed that why we couldn't have been more efficient.
2: We were new at this, Valerie. The Russians had been at this for 300 years in the time of the Cold War, going back to Peter the Great. The British had been at it for 500 years, going back to Queen Elizabeth I. The Chinese had been at it okay. for 2,600 okay. years, going back to Sun Tzu and the Art of War. Right. And, you know, Sun Tzu said in The Art of War, that that great classic written six centuries before Christ, know your enemy. That's the key. Well, we didn't know our enemy. We didn't know what was going on in the Soviet Union. We didn't know what was going on in the Islamic world. We didn't know what was going on in the developing third world, in Africa and in Asia. And it's a job of espionage to try and find out.
0: We didn't know what was going on. I I suspect a lot of it had to do with the fact that many of our agents didn't even speak the language of the country that they were spying on.
2: You know, in the early years of the CIA, uh, there were a goodly number of people who had been born in Budapest or Moscow, uh, places that were now behind the Iron Curtain. And they did know the language and the history and the culture of the places that we were trying to spy on. As time went by, there were fewer and fewer. Uh, The CIA began to resemble a kind of a white shirt, Virginia, country club kind of a place. Uh, And it's very hard to spy on, let's say, Afghanistan, or let's say, China, or let's say, Iraq, if you look like you just got off the bus from Wichita, Kansas, you know? this is a continuing problem. Even today? It faces us today. Hmm. There are, you know, uh, at the end of 2006, I don't know what the more recent numbers are, there were six Americans in the green zone in, in Baghdad
0: mm-hmm.
2: among the thousands and thousands and thousands of American military and diplomatic and intelligence people there who could speak Arabic, six. This is a problem only serious six,
0: Only You're saying only six could speak Arabic? That's
2: right. Wow. Mm. And we wind up as a consequence all over the world, and it's been a problem for decades, buying our intelligence from so-called friendly foreign intelligence services. And, Valerie, there aren't any friendly foreign intelligence service. Nations don't have friends. They have interests. Mm-hmm.
0: What was the general relationship between the president and the CIA, any president, the sitting president?
2: Richard Helms said later in his life that only one president has ever s- understood the first thing about the secret operations of the CIA. Guess who that might Bush. be? Bush the Elder. That's uh, right. You know, H-W- because, H-W- because George Bush the Elder ran the CIA yes. for uh, 11 months back in, in 1976 under President Ford. And not only did he understand it better than any other president, he really loved it. He loved the place. But the cruel fact is that the relationship between the president, And the CIA has often been tormented, and never more so than under Richard Nixon. Mm. Nixon hated and feared and detested and mistrusted the CIA. You know, when he and Henry Kissinger went to deal with the Russians or the Chinese or the North Vietnamese, they didn't tell the CIA what they were doing. I mean,
0: Kissinger was basically being the CIA, wasn't he? Well, Well, he (laughs) he was being
2: (laughs) super gay, you know, (laughs) flying all over the world um, in secret. Mm -hmm. And... That was very nearly the death of the American Intelligence Service, to have a president who misused and abused it like this. And the ultimate misuse was trying to use the CIA, Richard Nixon did, to cover up the Watergate break-in. And the first article of impeachment against him, before he resigned in disgrace in 1974, was using the CIA to obstruct justice. That was a low point. Wow. What about the relationship with the Pentagon, the CIA and the Pentagon? Tormented. Tormented. The fact is that today the CIA is only one of 16 American intelligence agencies, and it is no longer first among equals. It was demoted three years ago as a direct consequence of the Iraq weapons of mass destruction fiasco. That's correct. Wow. And a new super chief of American intelligence was created. He's called the director of national intelligence. The CIA is now just one among 16. It's not the big kid on the block anymore. Um, The Secretary of Defense is the 800-pound gorilla in this particular zoo. He controls somewhere around 80, 85% of the secret American intelligence budget, which is now well north of $50 billion a year.
0: Well, that's what I want to... My next question was going to be, the budget. Where in the world are they getting the money from to fund these efforts, which go into the millions and over the years has added up to
2: billions of dollars? Where is that money coming from? Because <laughs> the I, United I, States Congress, <laughs> Valerie, but in a very secret way. Okay. Now, our Constitution says, Article One, Section Nine, Clause Seven, uh, that you're not supposed to have a secret budget in this country. That Congress is supposed to publish a full statement, a full account of the money it gets from the taxpayers. Okay, that's the deal. We give them our money in taxes. They give us information back. That's the constitutional machine. Okay, an exception was made back in 1949 for the CIA and for secret intelligence spending. That money is buried in false line items in the Pentagon's budget. That's the only place big enough to hide it. Right OK. The military budget of the United States, the Pentagon's budget, not counting the costs of war in Iraq and Afghanistan, is now more than 500 billion with a B dollars a year. The secret intelligence budget is about one-tenth of that, about 50 billion with a B dollars a year, and it is hidden in various uh, dummy accounts. Under code names, under false line items, inside the Pentagon's budget. It's known as the black budget, as in secret, covert, hidden, no light shines on it. Um, And Congress, in its wisdom, has created this.
0: So, when did the domestic spying start? Because technically, the CIA is, is supposed to be about foreign countries and individuals.
2: It was John Fitzgerald Kennedy in 1962. And the purpose was to stop leaks from the Pentagon to the press. It didn't start with Richard Nixon. It started with John Fitzgerald Kennedy. It continued under President Johnson and it crested under President Nixon. The use of the CIA to spy on Americans during the Cold War is one of the least pleasant chapters in our history uh, of the CIA. It was Harry Truman's greatest fear when he set up the CIA that something like this would happen. He was worried about his words, an American Gestapo Mm -hmm. starting up inside our government. Well, of course, Nixon got caught doing this, but it's only been in the last couple of years that Kennedy's own White House tapes have revealed that he too used the CIA to spy on Americans, and so did President Johnson. Now, what's going on today? We will know better in 30 years mm. when the documents of this White House are declassified, if indeed they ever are. But it's quite clear that after 9-11, the President of the United States decided to use certainly the National Security Agency, which conducts electronic eavesdropping, and also the CIA to spy within the borders of the United States. We have to be very careful, and very alert about this because we do not want foreign intelligence services to be used as cops in this country. That is not what America is about.
0: And and is that, from what I gather, too, there's been a redefinition. Uh, of the CIA, and now this administration uh, do you feel is using it more as a kind of a paramilitary type of?
2: There's no question that after 9/11, the President of the United States turned to the CIA and said, "The gloves are off. I want you to round up every potential terrorist suspect on this planet and do what you have to do to prevent another attack on the United States. The CIA takes orders from the President of the United States. It was the President who said, set up the secret prisons. It was the President who authorized the CIA to use techniques tantamount to torture to elicit information from terrorist suspects. The CIA didn't put up its hand and volunteer to do this, any more than the CIA volunteered to assassinate Fidel Castro. Presidents command the CIA, but presidents won't always take the rap.
0: W- w- weren't there any who, who objected to, to, to the CIA uh, activity as maybe immoral? What about Jimmy Carter? I mean, Now, Jimmy sp- Carter
2: is a different kettle of fish on this, and I have talked to him about this face-to-face. Carter campaigned in 1976, At the height of the furor over uh, the Cold War activities of the CIA that had been exposed as a consequence of Watergate. And I'm talking about assassination plots, all authorized by presidents, by the way, Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy. I'm talking about secret prisons. I'm talking about the use of mind-altering drugs like LSD uh, in a search for some kind of truth serum. And all of these had come to light, and President Carter, on the campaign trail, when he was governor of Georgia and running, condemned the CIA as a national disgrace. However, when he took office, he wanted to use the CIA, as all presidents do, but he wanted to use it in a particular fashion, which was to further his foreign policy, which was based on human rights. And on the Helsinki Accords of 1975, which, between the Soviet Union and the United States, promoted, quote, the free movement of people and ideas, unquote. He used the CIA to try and get under the skin of the Soviets with samizat, that is, forbidden writings, with cassette tapes, with fax machines, for the free flow of information behind the Iron Curtain that proved to be a rather potent technique.
0: What would be some constructive advice that you would offer for the next president with respect to the CIA?
2: We as a nation have to rededicate ourselves to uh, setting up a professional intelligence service in this country. We have to have good intelligence or we are not going to be a superpower for very much longer. It is absolutely necessary to have a smart, sharp, professional intelligence service in this country. We need to know what's going on abroad or we're going to get into wars for the wrong reasons. Which,
0: which has been happening based on a lot of CIA misinformation. Uh, we've been going to war for the wrong reasons. Uh, well,
2: I think Iraq is an example yeah. of choosing to go to war based on bad intelligence. We cannot afford to let that happen again. And in order to create a professional American intelligence service in this country we're going to have to have a stand-up new generation of professional American intelligence officers and they are going to need to know how to speak Arabic Chinese. and Hindi and Urdu and pashto the language of Eastern Afghanistan mm-hmm. and Chinese Mandarin. and all those tough languages that bring down your grade point average yes okay? Hello. Mm-hmm. and they are going to have to know the history and the culture of the countries yeah. where these languages are spoken
0: well, Tim, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for allowing us to go between the lines with you today. Thank you, Valerie. Our history journey has reached back to biblical times and beyond. We've explored where God was born with Bruce Filer and the origins of man's religions. Here's a brief excerpt from where God was born. Bruce, welcome back to Between the Lines. It
3: feels like coming home, Valerie. It's so great. great to be with you.
0: Thanks so much. Well, when you were here last, we talked about your book, Walking the Bible, which I'm still recommending mm. to friends. It was an extraordinary book about the events in the Bible and the actual places and sites where they took place. But in your new book, Where God Was Born, you go beyond the stories in the Bible to the roots of religion and the origins of religious war. I mean, You, you traveled over, what, 10,000 miles through the most dangerous, war-torn areas of the Middle East. Um, you said you wanted to take the first journeys that you did, you know, walking the Bible and Abraham. You you wanted to take those journeys, but you needed to go
3: on this one. Why? I last sat here with you in March 2001 at the end of walking the Bible, and, and that journey in a lot of ways was a personal journey. I wanted to reconnect to the Bible to determine if the stories were real and whether they had any relevance to my life. Six months later, of course, came September 11th, and, I, and that was such a monumental change that we're still trying to figure out precisely what it means. Abraham, as you know, was on the cover of Time magazine, and I went back, it reminded me, and I went back to the library, and I got what turned out to be the April 8, 1966 cover of Time, black with three red words, Is God Dead? And the subject of that article, it was so controversial at the time, was religion was dead at a matter of influence in world affairs. God had retreated forever from contemporary life and would never return again. Forty years later, what are the biggest international stories? Terrorism, Iraq, Israel. What are the biggest domestic stories? The Ten Commandments, Mm -hmm. the debate over values. The biggest movie? The Passion. The biggest book? The Da Vinci Code. Mm -hmm. Religion is bigger than at any time in the last hundred years. And on a personal level, I kept being asked, after walking the Bible, how did it affect your faith? And what I thought but sometimes didn't say was it brought me closer to God but further away from organized religion mm-hmm. because of organized religion with its rivalries and jealousies and wars. And I I realized to figure out both what was going on in the world and with inside myself, I should go back to the Bible, back to the land where God was born, and try to figure out whether religion could play any role in help healing the world because it seems to have created so many problems. And that led to this 10,000 mile journey, Israel, Iraq, Iran. I mean, I had to really want to go to go back because it was right. much more dangerous. Right. Why do you think we have
0: this, this resurgence uh, 25, 30 years later with everything basically almost being dictated by one's, you know, whether you're a Christian or born again or, uh, you know, Muslim or whatever?
3: I think that's a, a really interesting question and a tough question, but I think that religion is bigger than nationality. It's bigger than gender. It's bigger than race. It's bigger than consumerism. I mean, most of the things that try to replace religion, these the great sort of secular ideas mm-hmm. of, of I'm going to work hard and I'm going to have all the objects and I'm going to have a, a, a exercise and I'm going to have a great diet and I'm going to live forever. All of those things, those ideas that were going to replace religion over the last 40 years, they all failed. There are very few things that bridge all of these great gaps. I mean, religion is the ultimate universal idea and what was interesting about my journey was that that idea of religion being universally that was not always there that was invented in babylon in the sixth century bc the idea that god belongs to everyone Mm. everywhere was created at a certain time in the thousand years between moses and jesus when all religions around the world many of the great ones were, were coming into being Babylon was
0: a fascinating part of the book for me. Let's let's since you mentioned it kind of go there a little bit and talk about, you know, what an impact it had in the history of things.
3: Well, let's let's begin by setting the stage, okay? Yes. So, the uh, the entire story of the Bible takes place on the Fertile Crescent. Okay, that's this The upper arm of the Fertile Crescent is Mesopotamia, the land between the Tigris and Euphrates. That's in Iraq and and Turkey today. The lower arm is Egypt down in the Nile. And the middle is the Promised Land, Israel, Jordan, uh, Syria, Palestine. The earliest stories of the Bible, the Garden of Eden, takes place in Mesopotamia, the birth of Abraham 2,000 years ago. And Abraham comes down to the Promised Land, then he and his descendants go down into Egypt, 430 years they're enslaved. Moses leads them 1200 BCE across the Red Sea. This is uh, received the Ten Commandments, and then Moses dies in about 1200 BCE on top of Mount Nebo, the end of Deuteronomy. That's 2,000 years of history in about 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then that begins the second half of the Bible, mm-hmm, which is where mm-hmm. God was born, picks up, of course. And it begins with Joshua conquering the promised land. And then for about 400 years, the Israelites are there. David, Solomon, they build the temple. They're living in Jerusalem. It seems that everything God wanted has come true. The Israelites are on the promised land. Everybody should live happily ever after. But okay. what happens is that uh, they descend into to drinking and fornication, and they don't behave very well, and all of these things that happen to country come to towners. And <laughs> so God says, You guys have lost contact with me. He yanks them from the land in the sixth century, sends Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, and he sends them off into exile. I realized if I wanted to understand what happens there, I had to go there. Babylon is 60 miles southeast of Baghdad in the middle of Iraq. So 10 months after the fall of Saddam, I'm in Kuwait. I board a C 130 aircraft. Uh, I'm sure you've been on them. They have these lo- these benches and this red mesh. looks like the inside of a submarine. It's the only plane I've ever been on where the flight attendant wore a pistol. <laughs> and uh, he said, okay, who here has never been to Baghdad? And I kind of tentatively raised my hand. He said, well, hopefully it won't be too sporty up there. Uh-oh. And he pauses. Sporty means we're being shot at. Now, First time I ever flew from Savannah, Georgia to Atlanta, Georgia, my dad says to me, nervous flyers get uh, white knuckles or sweaty palms. On this flight, I had both. (laughs) It was supposed to take 90 minutes. I checked my watch three times in the first eight minutes. (laughs) And finally, we get to Baghdad, and we land with this giant sort of crash. And I thought there would be, like, applause. We'd be happy. But it was dusk. We'd just broken rule number one in the war zone, never be out after dark. Oh, wow. So these Marines who were driving me around said, okay, put on your body armor. Put on your helmet. We're going for a drive. And lying in my hotel room that night, no one wanted me to take that, that trip except my wife of six months, who said, it's, it's who you are. You need to make this journey. Mm-hmm. And I lay in that hotel room in Baghdad, listening to the sound of gunfire, wondering if a bomb would explode the glass window mm-hmm. and, and, and land in my bed. And the next day, I head out on this journey. I went to the Garden of Eden, where the Tigris and Euphrates come together, the birthplace of Abraham. But the highlight was Babylon. Now, Babylon, Saddam had built a palace over the ruins of Babylon to say, just as Iraq had destroyed Jerusalem once, it could do so again. And I had always thought, that this was the saddest moment in history. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat, sat and wept. I mean, it's one of the most famous lines in the Bible from Psalm 137. (laughs) Well, it turns out the significance of what happened in Babylon is that the Israelites didn't weep. They invented religion. Before, God had been headquartered just in that land, the promised land. Now, you could reach God... In Babylon. So, or is it? Everywhere. So,
0: when you say they invented religion, what Re- do you, how are you defining the word religion there?
3: What I'm saying is they built the temple, and the temple was in Jerusalem, and it used to be that God lived in that temple. It was called the house of God. And the priest would go in once a year, and they would have a sacrifice, and everything was done in that one place. Mm-hmm. Well, so if you're. Where God
0: was, where right? Where God was. Supposedly. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm.
3: So, if suddenly that's destroyed, and you're living. 2,000 miles away in Babylon, what do you do? You either have to give up your God or you have to redefine your God. And they redefined their God and said, you know what, that was kind of a symbol of where God was. But really, God is everywhere.
0: Yeah, we really didn't mean that. (laughs) He's really
3: everywhere. And so what they did was they said, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to say the temple's the only place. We're going to have a place where you go, a synagogue where you go and you can worship invented in Babylon, the 6th century. We're going to say, not just the priests can talk to this God, anybody can pray to this God. And you know what we're going to do? We used to have these stories we used to tell. We're going to write them down. We're going to have them in the Bible, and we're going to read the Bible. Therefore, the birth of the Bible.
1: Uh-huh.
0: This
3: very simple idea that we all grew up with, like it was the most commonplace wow. thing, that you go to a church or a synagogue in Seattle or San Antonio or Savannah, Georgia, and worship a God, that idea was invented in Babylon. It changed the world. You cannot understand the world today without understanding Babylon.
0: Abraham, King David, Jonah, and Cyrus. Those were all very, very, very important characters in the Bible that you that you talked about. The public success versus the private failure mm. of many of these leaders, right. especially with David, for instance, that was a pattern that I really saw throughout the book of these great leaders that oftentimes they were very successful in the public, but their private lives were horrendous.
3: In many ways, the, the, the central story in the Bible is... How can humans develop a relationship with God? And God creates the Garden of Eden and then the humans disappoint him. God frees the Israelites from slavery and then they start complaining in the desert. God brings them into the promised land and then they behave badly. So time and again leadership in a way, the idea that these leaders are going, to, are going to be our representatives to God that ultimately I think is a failure in the Bible. And the Bible says each of us has to have a relationship with God ourselves. We cannot let these leaders do it for us because they just ultimately are not worthy. And that I think is one of the surprising lessons of of the Bible today which is that it doesn't say I'm going to take care of you people I'm going to let your leaders take care of you it ultimately is you have to redeem yourself and that is what happens when the prophets come along. What happens is God says, okay, you know what? These ki- these kings are a failure. I'm going to turn to the prophet." And the prophets say, we are responsible for taking care of one another. Uh, your behavior can affect whether you have a godly world. Your being religious can, in fact, help save the world. And it is an invitation to each of us to reach out to God. And I think that is, I think what's happening in the world today, which is that, we no longer can accept what our politicians tell mm-hmm. us. We no longer can accept, we no longer accept what our parents tell us. We no longer accept what our journalists tell us. We are responsible ourselves. And what's happening in the world in religion today is for the first time, people are saying, I'm no longer going to accept what our religious leaders tell me. Mm. I'm going to have to go to the Bible and I'm going to have to make that relationship myself. And that's a lot of, I think, what's happened to me in where God was born is realizing I have to reach out to God myself uh, because I can't expect others to do it for me.
0: I want to just make a point about profits, too, that that was made in the book. We're not talking about fortune tellers. Mm. We're, how you define profit in the book talked about what you just said is that they said what would happen
3: if mm. this was done. The prophets are not fortune tellers. They do not predict the future. They are people who have a Relationship with God, and they, they warned the people about their own contact. And some of them were high people, some of them were in the court, some of them were farmers, some of them were men, some of them were women. They, they really come from the whole gamut of society, and they basically put the pressure back on the people. Yeah, what you reap is what you sow, basically. Exactly. That's a very, very powerful lesson today. And I think that gets to one of the themes in my book, which is that if you go back to the roots of the Bible, And you read it, there is a great message in there of tolerance, of respecting diversity, of going out and making the world a better place. This is a message that is very familiar to moderates and and sometimes even liberals in the world today. And I think that a lot of the people who are speaking out about the Bible now are extremists. And there is, I think that moderates can take back the Bible and say, in the text is a message that I find inspirational. The Bible is simply too important to civilization to be seated to one side mm-hmm. in the debate over values.
0: Mm-hmm. The other thing that didn't disturb me, but, well, maybe it did disturb me, was the amount of violence in the history of the Bible. It's as almost as if we can't have religion without violence. Actually, that brings us back to a question posed earlier. Can religions figure out a way to relate without killing each other? There's a psychoanalyst, uh, author named James Hillman, uh, who wrote a book called A Terrible Love of War, where he believes that we are ceaselessly driven to war by psychological issues and, and that we're always going to have war. What do you think about that?
3: Go home tonight and open your Bible to the opening chapters of Genesis and you will see before there is order, there is chaos. Before there is God, there is this watery chaos. And then God creates the world. And what does God use to create the world? God uses words. And the message there is that the only thing more powerful than the forces of chaos is the force dialogue, the Bible definitely has violence all the way through it. Mean, Jews and Christians who smugly console themselves that Islam is a violent religion need to go back huh. and read their own history. Really. However, the Bible also says that in the text itself is, I think, the avenue for our reconciliation. I went to Iran, as you know. It was the the last leg of my trip, Israel, Iraq, and Iran. Having left my wife to go to Iraq, I took her on a second honeymoon to Iran. She was like, great, honeymoon (laughs) in the axis of evil. Uh, And we went to Persepolis, which is one of the great sites in the world, and it was built in honor of Cyrus the Great in the 6th century BCE. And on the wall there are these carvings. I mean, it was like representatives from different countries bringing tribute to the king, like the opening of the Olympic ceremonies. Mm -hmm. And Everyone's touching and holding hands. Happiness was a virtue in ancient Persia. And one way Cyrus promoted happiness was by telling people they could respect their own gods. Yes, Cyrus was the first interfaith leader in history. And who heralds him more than anything? Which document? The Bible. Open your Bible again to Isaiah 45. And it says, I call you my name. You are the anointed one, God says to Cyrus. That word is Mashiach. That's Messiah. The Bible calls Cyrus the Messiah. I'm there with my wife, and after being shown around, I go over and she's literally weeping, Valerie. I was like, what's wrong, honey? And she's like, Iran is supposed to be such a pariah. But I've never wanted to get deeper into a society. The idea that we keep hearing about Cyrus, I wish Americans weren't so cut off from this place. The message of Cyrus is that we must respect diversity. It is there in the text. So while there is violence in the Bible, there's also this path. Go back to Genesis 1. After a decade of doing this, my favorite line comes from Genesis 1, God created humans in his image, in his likeness. That says each of us has a bit of divinity Mm -hmm. in us. So to disrespect another human is to disrespect God.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Let's talk about a few of the fascinating discoveries
3: that you made uh, during your, your journey.
0: Like, how did
3: Joshua bring down the walls of Jericho? where God was born opens at the start of the second half of the Hebrew Bible. It's 1200 BCE. The Israelites are about to descend from Mount Nebo, and Joshua is going to lead them into the Promised Land. And because this was a military event, I decided to get the most decorated general in Israel today to give me a tour. I spent six months getting special permission to be in a helicopter over Israel and the West Bank, and he begins by leading me in this helicopter over Jericho. It's one of the oldest cities on earth, and he's pointing out all the various sites down below. Now, in the story... The Israelites get there. They walk around blaring their trumpets. They walk around every day for seven days. On the seventh day, they go around seven times, and the walls, they blow the trumpets, and the walls come tumbling down. It's a great miracle. So Yahya, this sort of crusty old general, and he says to me, you, we have, you know, with all due respect to God— uh, I don't think that was a miracle. I think that was the first example of psychological warfare.
0: So, so it's because every day they came and blew these trumpets. Yes. And every day the people were saying, what, what, There's what, be what war. are There's they gonna doing? There's going to be war. They're
3: going to attack. They're going to attack. Everyone get ready. But they and never they go would. away. You know, everyone gets all ready and down. Ready and down. It's like, enough already. <laughs> so by the time they blow the trumpets the last time, they open the door and let them come in.
0: <laughs> or either they knock those walls down themselves. Exactly. Enough already. Anything, anything. <laughs>
3: uh, and uh, that was, and then he took me over to Jerusalem, actually, at the end of this tour. And, and we had permission to be, 5, 000, above 5,000 feet. But we had this kind of commando pilot He said, hey kid, you want to go for a dive? So he <laughs> presses down on this shaft and we go 5,000 feet, 4,000. Like We're right at the dome of the rock. Solomon built the temple here. Jesus walked here. Muhammad ascended from heaven here. 3,000 feet, 2,000. I'm like locked this on the golden dome. This is illegal too, right? It's totally illegal, yeah, yes. I mean, okay. if I'm 1,500, 1,200, I mean, at this point we're close enough to hear the prayers, and we are near enough to give a shot. I'm thinking, well, how high will a a bullet go? (laughs) And then we stop 1,000 feet above Jerusalem, and I turn to Yahya, this military general, and I say, you are part of the most lethal fighting force in the world, and that you are passionate about the Bible. What would your soldiers say? He said, what I love about the Bible is what it says about community. At the end of the story, Joshua gathers all the Israelites together, Men, women, and children, and he reads them the Bible, reads them the law of Moses. He said, now imagine, there's no loudspeakers. Women only got the right to vote 100 I'm years ago. I just going to
0: say, most of them weren't allowed. The women and children were never allowed to see or hear these religious things. Go.
3: Right. This is 3,000 mm-hmm. years ago, mm-hmm. he says. And that is what's, what makes biblical religion survive, is that the values are universal. Mm-hmm. They apply to everyone, and that is very clear uh, in the text. Men, women, and children Everybody, and that's why one of the reasons the biblical religion survives.
0: Well, I've hoped you've enjoyed reviewing some of our favorite shows. We'll be back next week with more of the best of Between the Lines. So, until then, remember there's always more to learn when you go between the lines. Between the Lines is brought to you in part by Jackmont Hospitality and a generous anonymous supporter. We thank you. To learn more about the books and authors featured on Between the Lines, go to our website at wabe.org btl and listen to an archived program. Or check out our suggested reading list for both children and adults. To subscribe to a podcast of the program, go to our website and click on Podcast. Be sure to join us next week for another engaging program because there's always more to learn when you go Between the Lines. The executive producer of this program is Lois Reitzes. Producer, Marjorie Lancer. Editor and technical producer, Mike Johns. Opening and closing music by Afro Blue. And I'm your host, Valerie Jackson. Between the Lines is a production of 90.1 WABE.